you have a Bible, I hope you do, either to open it up or to turn it on in our day of technology. First Samuel chapter 17, and I give you forewarning that as we make our way towards the Lord's table, I'm going to read a lot of scripture to you today, and I hope and pray that the truth of Hebrews, the word of God is alive and is powerful and is sharp, will come true for us all this morning. So as you are turning there or turning on, I um, want to remind you again of what I started with this morning. I hope that today's sermon and next week's sermon, because I'm going to deal with, I think in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, probably the two most famous passages of Scripture that are out there. Today we're going to look at David and Goliath, uh, which is probably the most famous of all Old Testament passages. And then next Sunday, by God's grace, we're going to look in he- um, John chapter 6, and the feeding of the 5,000, which is probably one of the most famous New Testament passages of Scripture. So as a way of setup for this this morning, as we make our way to the Lord's table, I just want to remind you, in case you forgot, that it's 2018. It's here. It's already here. In fact, seven days has gone by since then. And uh, it's our first Sunday, as I said to you in that email blast, this is Sunday number one of 52 opportunities that you and I have to come together and worship God together and to pray together and to give together and serve God together and fellowship together and hear from God together and talk to God together and sing to God together and encourage one another together and to love one another together, to give each other grace and mercy and hear from each other. 2018 is another year of opportunity For you and I to say, no, this is the year I'm going to read God's word more faithfully than ever before. That I'm going to pray more than I've ever prayed before. I'm going to learn more about Jesus. My dad's favorite hymn of all hymns is that hymn titled, More About Jesus Would I Know. And it's funny because the older I get, the smarter my dad gets. And once again, I'm reminded of that. If I wanted to put or encapsulate what I hope you and I will try to do as individuals, as couples, as families, as a church this year, I can think of no other better way than to put it than my dear friend who I look to for a lot of wisdom, Pastor Ray Ortland Jr., who pastors is about to retire, I think, this coming year. And he said this about how to tackle a year. He said this, personal communion with the living God, the Bible our guide, the cross, our admission fee, the spirit, our connectivity, faith, our openness, obedience, our follow through. I'm going to tell you, that's a great way to say what I want to say about this year for me, for us. But let me add a little something for all of us this year. What I mean is this, it's the title of my sermon, Will You Have a Heart Cause for 2018? Will you have a cause for 2018 that's bigger than you? Will you have a cause for this year? A cause like never before, a real heart cause. Maybe the better question could be, does your heart have a cause? What are you passionate about? 
If you were to go to our church website or you go back there in the foyer and look on the high level of the bulletin board, you'll actually read the mission statement of this church. I don't know when the last time you did it, but I think at least once a year. Maybe I should, if I was a better pastor, should talk about it more often. Here's what you see on our website. Here's what's in the back. God-centered, truth-driven, gospel-loving. Right there is a profound way of seeing life. But it goes even further. It says Calvary Baptist Church exists to know and worship and enjoy God as we proclaim the gospel of Christ to all people. And then it goes even further and says, we strive to accomplish this vision. How? Through biblical teaching. That's number one. Number two, compassionate outreach. And number three, by fostering a loving sense of community in our congregation. These are the pillars by which we say, I found it very interesting that our mission statement says, Calvary Baptist Church exists to do this. This is supposed to be our cause. I think this is awesome. I get excited about this kind of stuff. But is it our cause? Is it our cause? Is this our vision? Our mission? Let me ask you this morning, do you pray for this? Do you strive to live like this? Do you remind each other that this is why we exist? Now, if you're like me, when I get excited about certain things, my first reaction is, okay, I'm excited about this, but how am I pulling this off? How? How do I even begin to do this? How do I accomplish this in any way, shape, or form? And again, I go back to Ray Ortland's quote, which is, right? how do you want to have personal communion with the living God? So the Bible is our guide, the cross our admission fee, the Spirit of God our connectivity, faith our openness, and obedience our follow-through. In other words, from beginning to end, it's about the glory of Christ. And again, let me add a little something, because as, as you know, for me, in next week, the, about, before we get to next Sunday, Debbie and I will celebrate our third anniversary here. On January the 12th will be the anniversary of our coming here. And uh, believe it or not, it's as cold as it's been. I believe it was almost with the windshield minus 30 the day we drove in and started to offload that truck in the driveway of 61 Gilenis. So I'm thankful that I think this week it'll be warmer than that and I don't have to offload a truck but you know that I've given you themes every year, and I did this to the elders this past week, and I plan to do this again. So here's the theme for 2018. It's this, being like Christ. If you go to our church website, this is the first thing you'll see. The theme of this year is to be like Christ. To know Jesus is to be like Him. To know Him is to be like Him. And you know I'm a theme guy. I love this because I've had uh, 2016 was the year of the Bible. Last year was supposed to be the year of pursuing holiness. I'm a goals guy. I, I believe in goals and targets and all these types of things because you know I've said it. If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. So I'd rather aim at something and see how close we can get, right? But ultimately, the reason I have chosen this goal, and to be quite honest, I'm setting myself up because I don't know where to go from here in the coming years, because the goal and desire, the pursuit, and by the way, our destiny is to be like Christ. Your destiny is not to just know more of this book, as if now you can win all of the, um, 
trivia games, or you can have Bible sword drills, or you can win apologetical arguments all the time. The idea is that you can be like Christ. This is what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3. If you want to turn there, you can. I would encourage you to write some of these references down. And please, church, go and read these this year. Here's what John says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Look and see what kind of love God has given you us, that we should be called children of God. And I love this. And so we are. It's almost like he's saying, here's the reality. And this reality is true. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. If you're wondering, why aren't we becoming more popular in the culture? (laughs) Was Jesus popular in his culture? No. But notice, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone, here's the result of if you believe this, everyone who thus hopes in him, Christ, purifies himself as he is pure. And so as God gives me breath and strength for the next 51 Sundays, I plan to ask you, ask me, ask us, are we being like Christ? Have we sought to be like Christ the past week? Are you more than just reading your Bible to know him? More than just praying to him to talk to him? More than reading the Bible or simply obeying Jesus and his word? More than giving to the church? More than just attending? More than just serving? But actually becoming like Christ? What I mean is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Here are the words of Paul. Be kind to one another. Oh, that we would be a church who's kind to one another. Kind to one another. Notice the next word, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, if this is a reality, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so church, this year our theme is to see the city of St. John's. That they will do to us what they did to the followers of Christ back in the first century. My desire, my longing, my pursuit this year is to actually have this happen to me, to you. In Acts eleven twenty six, we read, For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I want to experience the world mocking me by calling me a Christian, a little Christ. I want that to happen for me, for you. I want you to experience what it is for someone to go, you you must be a Christian. And say it like that. You must be a Christian. To, To say, you're like a little Jesus. And for you to go, thank you very much. Yes, yes, I am where it can be a badge of honor. We want to be like Christ, and we want others to say that about us. So this year, the way we talk and the way we act and the way we treat each other, 
the way we care, the way we love and to show mercy and extend grace and have patience, the way we live out 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, which is not just for weddings. The love chapter was written to a church for how a church should treat each other. And we're going to live this out the way we cheer for each other, the way we want each other to succeed, the way we pray not only for each other, but with each other. And yes, it's a John 13, 34 to 35, right? A new commandment I leave with you that you love one another. And what's the result? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. You see, when you and I are like Christ, then people will see this. And so in this year, in 2018, the church facilities that we've been talking about, about trying to expand both internally and externally when we reach out not only to our city, but we ask our world to join us, to help us to reach out to all of our city and indeed to our province, that we will be like Christ even in doing this. Whether it's the mundane or the spectacular, Folks, I want to die for the gospel. Can I be honest from my heart and tell you, I want to die for the gospel. I don't want to die for over things that we can't take with us. I don't want to die for things that we can't brag to Jesus with or stuff that won't last for eternity. Now, that's not to say we don't need facilities or that we need vision, we need goals, we need ideas, and we need programs and plans to accomplish things for Christ. As I said earlier, aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. We got to have goals. But rather I try, I'd rather try and fail than not try and all. And may we be truly like William Carey this year, who said, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. May that be true of this remnant. May that be true. So this year, 2018, we want to be a church after God's own heart. Not Steve's, not the elders. Not whoever has the biggest voice or the most magnetic personality. We want to be a church after God's own heart. And where would we turn to see that in motion? I mean, after all, we're about to celebrate our first Lord's Supper with each other for 2018. And this is a meal where we come together as a family, not as individuals. And remember, that's our vision and our mission, right? That's what's printed on our website. So I'd say let's turn to the Old Testament, which is why I had you go to 1 Samuel 17. And I'll give you a reason why I'm starting in the Old Testament. You see, in the New Testament, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, here's why you should read your Old Testament. Paul tells one of the most gifted, talented, amazing churches who were divisive, they were competitive, they, they were having issues with questions of theology. He says to them in verse chapter uh, 10, verse 11 of 1 Corinthians, now these things happened to them, he's been talking about Moses and Israel, as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. Why? On whom the end of the ages come. Therefore, because of that, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he or she fall. Now, I love this. No temptation has taken you that is not common to man. See, whatever you and I are facing in 2018, whether it's individually, whether it's a couple, whether it's as a family, or whether it's us as a church, don't think that we're facing it for the first time. Any time anybody comes to me and says, I found something new, I go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. And so the Old Testament was there because we learned no temptation that you and I are facing hasn't been common to mankind. Other people have faced it. And the Old Testament is full of examples for you and I to see because what are we supposed to discover? God is faithful. God's faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Isn't that hopeful? It doesn't matter what you're facing. It doesn't matter how challenging studies are or job searches are or marriage is or raising a family is or looking after the grandkids is or finances are or whatever. God's faithful. He won't let you face something you can't handle. But with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, notice that the way of escape doesn't mean so you won't face anything. The way of escape means you'll be able to walk through it and endure it. And so in obedience from these words, I want to go to 1 Samuel 17 and read about the most famous, I think, of all children's stories. Ranks right up there with Noah's Ark, right? Only difference is for all of our young people, it's not a story, okay? We sometimes say this as, as adults, this is factual. This really happened, this is not make-believe. It's, it's not Narnia. It's not any of these things. It's not Star Wars. This really happened, okay? So let's look at it in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now, what you read about in the first few verses is that basically Israel, the nation of Israel, and the nation of the Philistines are at war. Something they did. They had a vicious uh, war amongst themselves for well over a century, and by the time you get to it, I want to go to verse 3. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them, which was the valley of Elah. Now, you've heard me tell you this. I've been to Israel a number of times. I've been to this valley, and I have walked through it, and I've stood on the, val on the, on the mountaintop to the south, and I've stood on the south mountaintop to the west. And I've done that, sorry, the, the north, the south and the north. And I've seen this valley. And I've walked down in the valley of Allah. And I've been in the dry riverbed that's still there that floods in the spring season. And I have five stones in my office, if you want to see them, that I picked myself out of a dry riverbed in the valley of Allah. And I've imagined what it was like if that was David. Okay? And so you get this here. And notice what happens and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. If you're into the numbers, he was nine and a half feet tall. He made Ben look short. All right? Ben would look like a gnome to Goliath. All right? Whereas Ben makes all of us look like gnomes. All right? He was six cubits. He was nine and a half feet tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. If you're into numbers, his, his armor was 125 pounds, just his breastplate armor, okay? He had a helmet, in the, and he had a bronze armor on his leg, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels. The spearhead weighed 15 pounds. That is heavier than the shot put at the Olympics. So this guy was a big, strong, powerful dude. 
He had a shield bearer that went before him. He needed another human being just to carry his shield. This is how big this guy was. And he stood in verse 8 and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? what happened is they would stand, and if you've ever known anything about war, Israel would stand on their time, and every morning they'd come out, and they would do their rally cries. They would do their, their battle cries. If you've watched uh, any kind of sports and you've seen rugby, one of the most famous nations is the nation of New Zealand, and, and, and they're called the All Blacks, and they go out, and they do this entire thing where they shake, and they do all this type of stuff, and it's meant to be intimidating. It's meant to, to draw fear into their opponent before they even start, and so each nation would go out, and they'd do their rally cries, and they'd stomp, and they'd beat, and, all, and it was meant to intimidate, and they did this back and forth to each other, and so Goliath says, why are you doing this? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine <laughs> said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. If you write in your Bible, this is not him saying, I'm just against Israel. He says, I defy the God of Israel. That's what he means. He's mocking God here. And when Saul, now notice the effect this had on the nation. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, let's add to the drama. David was the son of an Ephraite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, and he had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man had already, was already old and advanced in years. And the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of these three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third was Shema. And David was the youngest. And the three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took a stand morning and evening. So you're supposed to get the interplay and the drama here. You've got this Philistine coming out 40 days, over a month. He is defying Israel. He's mocking God. He's calling out, where's your champion? Send him to me. And they are cowering in fear. And in the meantime, in the back, in just one family... Three brothers and the runt of the litter, the baby. David who's going back and forth at this time. He sometimes gets called to Saul. If you remember, Saul has done disobediently. The throne's been taken from him. And David would play the harp for him when he would get kind of in vicious, manic, depressive states. And that evil spirit would leave him. And when he wasn't playing the harp, a very manly instrument, I might add, then he was tending the sheep. This is what he was doing. Notice verse 17, and Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of, of, the, of this parched grain, that's roasted grain, and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. And also he goes beyond that. He says, take 10 cheeses to the commander of their, of their thousand. So he gives something also to the leader of their group and their battalion. And he says, see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. In other words, tell me my boys are okay. For some of you that are older that have maybe lived through the Vietnam War and lived through some of these things, I know my father-in-law, when, when I talk to him about this and, and talk about those letters, 
where moms and dads sat at home and wondered, how are my boys? How are my kids? If you talk to Mary and Eldon in our church who have three sons that serve in the forces and have done tours to Afghanistan and Haiti, and they will tell you about how they would sit at home and wait and wonder, how are my kids? How are my kids? And so Jesse does what any father would do, and he says, give me some word. And so now verse 19, Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Allah fighting with the Philistines. And so David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment of the host, was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry, and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. So this has been happening for over 40 days now, and David left things in charge of the keeper. I love this, of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brother. This young boy was like, I want to go where the action is. I want to be a part of this. I want to yell with my brothers and I want to look across the valley and see the Philistine army. And maybe he had romanticized what this was all about and he, he couldn't wait. His curiosity as a young boy he wanted to be there. By the way, if you want to know, David was probably 19 years old at this point. And so he there, and as he talked with them, behold, the champion of the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel Oh, and by the way, the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make him his father's house free in Israel. In other words, no taxes. That's what will happen. And then verse 26, David said to the man who stood by, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? He basically says, what, what did you just say? Tell me again. And so they tell him again. But look at the reaction of his brothers. Now verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, when he heard he, when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Do you hear an older brother smacking down on his younger brother? Listen, boy, what do you hear running your mouth? Where's the few little sheep you take care of? You can hear the scorn. You can, you can hear the putting them in this place kind of thing, can't you? And look at what David says. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. And when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, <laughs> I love this, let no man's heart fail because of him. What? Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And, and Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and he took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. This is no ordinary 19-year-old. This is like, you know, a, a, an Israeli ninja 
right? Like he, this guy knows what he's about. In verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. And here's the reason why. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And, and Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Go boy, give her a go. And then Saul closed him with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with his coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go. And I don't know what he did, but maybe he tried to be agile. Maybe he tried his little moves and he's way down. Because remember, guys, Saul should have been the one out fighting Goliath. And Saul is no small guy as well. I'll, I'll prove that to you in a minute. But finally, David says to him, look, this is no good. I cannot go with these. I have not tested them. And so David took them off in verse 40, and he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Here it is. This is the makings of a movie. The orchestra should be up now as Goliath, nine and a half feet tall, going towards David. And the fact that David could put on Saul's armor tells you, by the way, too, that David was no pipsqueak. He was young, but he was not an imp. He was probably a very healthy, agile, masculine guy, but he knows what he's able to fight with. And notice what happens. And the Philistine, verse 41, moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine saw, looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And what that means basically is he was a pretty boy means he was handsome. He had fair skin. He didn't have acne. He had, he had well-kept hair. He, he, he would have been a GQ guy, all right? He, he would have he he had a really cool shepherd. He would have wore slim jeans, all right? That's what David would have done, all right? And so he looks at him, and I love what the Philistine said to David in verse 43. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? He's like, what, what do you think you're doing? What do you think you're coming out like to a dog? Where you're going to and, and flick a stick and I'm going to go chase it? What are you, foolish? You come out to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, which is ironic because if you read back earlier in Samuel, it, Philistines had had an encounter with the Ark of the Covenant before in their temple, the fish god Dagon, and it didn't go well. And so the Philistine said to David, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This wasn't about David. Notice what he says next. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the year and to the wild beasts of the earth and all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with spear or sword for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Notice David's not individualistic. 
David sees himself as something greater. And so David, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. He didn't pull back. He runs at him. This was probably the first time in Goliath's life any human being had run at him. His whole life, people ran from him. And so now this young 19-year-old is running to him, and David put his hand in his bag while he's in full run, took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead, the only place he wasn't covered. And the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. He's not dead, but he sure is stunned. And so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. And struck the Philistine and killed him. There was a sword in the hand of David. And then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And notice the results of this. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistine as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. And so the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharahim and as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines. By the way, that's eight miles. They chased them for eight miles. And the people of Israel came back. And they plundered their camp, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, put his armor and his tent. And the rest, they say, is history. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, this took a lot longer for me to read through, so it's obvious I'm not getting anywhere near through all of this today. So I'm going to tantalize you with a few things and then bring you back next week for the conclusion. It's like a two-part miniseries, okay? But I want to give you a couple things as we go to the table of the Lord. I wanted to start with, does your heart have a cause? This is a passage that's great for you to understand what it means to have a heart cause. Because the Bible tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. And if you're like me, my parents came to Christ when I was five years old. So I've been inside of a church my entire life. And I remember Sunday school, and I remember youth group, and I remember the Christian school, and I remember always hearing how David was a man after God's own heart, and nobody ever tell me why. Because as I grew up and learned about David, I learned that David wasn't perfect. David screwed up. David's the same guy that cheated on his wife and murdered another woman's husband and numbered the people. David's the author of Psalm 51. We sang about it. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. But so you'll find this out. Go back to 1 Samuel 13, 14, and you'll read this. When God, through Samuel the prophet, says to Saul, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to the prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So, so insight number one is to be a man after God's own heart must mean you want to do what God wants you to do. And you actually get the explanation for this statement in all the way in the New Testament, Acts chapter 13, verse 22. When Luke tells us, and when he had removed him, that's talking about God removing Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. Here's why. Who will do all my will? 
Do you want to be a God's heart man or woman this year? Do the will of God. Be like Christ. It doesn't mean you're perfect. But see, when David screwed up, he didn't make excuses. He didn't run and hide. He owned it. He confessed it. He went back to his father and said, I have done wrong. And he trusted him. He trusted him. And so this is why, and so our passage, this war that broke out, and again, there's no Saul in this epic proportional standoff, and Goliath comes out, and be honest, the question we always ask, or I ask, is where is Saul? He's just as afraid. He's just as distressed. He should have been there. He was probably close to seven feet himself. The Bible says he was head and shoulders above everybody else in the nation of Israel. So he's not a small guy, but he's a fraidy cat. Because sin and bitterness, and as Goliath comes out and mocks Israel, but more than that, mocks the God of Israel, and everyone's afraid, looking out at this champion, and no doubt many people in the nation of Israel and that army said, why won't Saul go out? And you see, this is what happens when man is bigger than God. You see, when people are big and God is small, you'll be afraid constantly. And so very quickly, as we come to the table of the Lord, I'm going to give you the first two points. Next week, I'll finish this. In verses 17 to 22, if we're going to have a heart cause for 2018, David had a willing heart for the cause. If you can take something into the Lord's table, David had a willing heart. Remember, his father comes to him. He's 19 years old. He's basically a heart player for the king. And when he's not doing that, he's the sheep keeper. He watches over dad's sheep. He's a shepherd. And never once does he complain. You see, number one, David was quick to respond even to the smallest request. Do you want to have a, a be like Christ year this year? Then will you respond even to the smallest thing? You see, David wasn't looking for the big task. He wasn't the one who wanted the limelight. He didn't do only the influential things. David was all in whatever needed to be done. Church, if we're going to be like Christ this year, 1 Corinthians 4.2, moreover, it is required of stewards that be found faithful. Will you and I be a faithful steward of Christ this year, of the gospel? Matthew 25, 23, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. It is from this passage of scripture that I get my motto in life. I will tell you, I'd rather try and fail than not try at all. I really would. Remember, that's the, that's the parable of the three servants, the one with five, the one with two, and the one with one. And the one with two goes and trades and doubles it. The one with five goes and trades it. But the one with one buries it in a napkin and, and buries it. See, he was more afraid of failure than he was the master. So I'd rather try and fail than not try at all, no matter what the task is, no matter how big or how small. As we think of how to have a heart cause for this year, realize that means being like Christ in the way David did whatever God asked of him from the massive stuff to the small stuff. Do you want to be like Christ? Look no further than to Jesus Christ himself. Jesus did the big stuff. He left heaven. He became humanity. He went to the cross. But Jesus also did the little stuff like grew in wisdom and stature as a child. He was baptized by John the Baptist. 
He walked and talked with those who were his own creation. Calvary David knew this, and we must also, listen to me, God rewards a willing heart. God rewards a willing heart. You see, listen to what God said to Solomon, the son of David, in 1 Chronicles 28.9. And you, Solomon, my son, know the Lord, know the God of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. You've got to have a willing heart. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not to me only but also to all who have loved his appearing. Could this be the year that Jesus Christ comes back? Would that excite you? From the youngest of you to the oldest of you. Trust me, this world can offer you nothing compared to the return of Christ. A driver's license won't cut it. Your first girlfriend or your graduation won't cut it. Getting married or having children won't cut it. Getting the mortgage paid won't cut it. Retiring well and traveling the world won't cut it compared to seeing Jesus. So may we long for that this year. We are called to have a willing heart. And then secondly and finally for today, David had a tender heart for the cause. David had a tender heart for the cause. You see, David had a willing heart, but David had a tender heart. We saw that in verses 23 to 31. Remember when he goes down and he listens and he hears Goliath mock Israel and mock the God of Israel? He wasn't simply being obedient to his father. He cares for his brothers, but he's aware of his responsibilities. Remember, he, he left the sheep with another keeper. He obeys dad, and then he hears and sees what's going on, and he's shocked not only by what Goliath is saying, but by the response or lack thereof of a whole nation. And so let me give you some points to ponder. A tender heart is a protected heart. A tender heart is a protected heart. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, how? As living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind and by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to have a protected heart? Get into the word of God. Be like Christ. Secondly, a tender heart is a forgiving heart. What is often overlooked in the life of David is how forgiving he was. Saul tried to kill him and he would never take vengeance. In fact, if you read about it later, when Saul would die and his sons, and a man comes and reports the death of Saul, and David says to the man, did you defend your king? And the man says, no. David says, then you need to die. If you remember years later when David was the king and he had to run away and he came back and this guy comes out and curses David and, and all these things and all of his armored men want to kill the guy. And David says, no, leave him alone. Because he's, he's cursing me, but he's not cursing God. 
I'll forgive him. If you remember the son of Saul and the son of Jonathan who was crippled and was worried and afraid that after Saul and Jonathan were dead that David would take his vengeance and David brings that dear paralytic boy into his home and puts those paralyzed feet under his king's table and he says, this is where you'll eat for the rest of your life. See, a tender heart is a forgiving heart. And then finally, a tender heart is a spirit-possessed heart. So this year, church, are we going to have a willing heart? And will we have a tender heart? A spirit-possessed heart, Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So this year, we need to be a heartfelt church, a church that has a willing heart, a church that has a tender heart, where we protect our heart, and we have forgiving hearts, and we have spirit-possessed hearts, where we look at each other, and we are patient and joyful and loving and kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-controlled. We want to be like this towards each other, and we want the world to see us be like it when it doesn't make sense. When we do the porcupine dance and we rub up against each other and we prick each other and we let each other down and we have differences of opinion and we do all these things, but God forbid that we would turn on ourselves and nip away at ourselves because that's not the gospel. When David's brother mocked him, David didn't mock him back. I've experienced, I got two boys and they're not here to defend themselves. But the oldest one is the big one. And the middle boy has got the fast mouth. And so when they would fight, the oldest one did it physically. And the middle one did it verbally. And I always knew when it went rat bad for the smaller verbal one. Because I'd hear, oh! Because the bigger one had gotten physical. And I used to sit those boys down and still do. You know what I tell them? Act like brothers, not enemies. Protect each other. Forgive each other. Love each other. Don't turn on each other. Because let me say this, church. If you won't deal with the attack out there, then we'll attack in here. Let me just tell you straight up. If we won't put on the old armor of God, which we'll learn about next week, and fight the fight out there, as God is my witness, we will fight in here and we will destroy ourselves. So let us have willing hearts and tender hearts, a protected heart, a forgiving heart, a spirit-possessed heart. And let us take that as a family into the table of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. Lord, I just pray that the word of God will have penetrated my heart and others here this morning. Lord, I love this passage. I love preaching this. I get excited about what you could do with us. And now as we celebrate the table of the Lord, and I know we'll go a little bit longer than 1230, but oh God, may we be excited to be together and just to work this out together. 
And so, Lord, speak to us. Visit us now. Give us willing hearts to worship you, even in communion. Give us tender hearts to realize it's not about me, but about us. It's about you. And Father God, may the battle, whatever Goliath is out in the world, screaming at us, defying you, mocking you, and asking us, will we fight? May we be willing to battle sin. Oh, Lord, as well, tell him next week how David said in Psalm 139, I have hated sin with a perfect hatred. Oh, God, visit us right now in our hour of communion. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.